Hi, I'm Dr. Beth Mollison. And I'm Dr. Alyssa Watson. Thank you for joining us in the veterinary break room today. These are short conversations where we chat informally about relevant topics in veterinary medicine. And today we are talking all things pharmacy, and it's a very big episode for us. We're very excited because we have our very first guest here with us in the break room who I'll introduce in a second. But first wanted to kind of say, you know, we wanted to do a podcast about pharmacists and the pharmacy and medications and drugs, because of course it is a profession that we wind up working fairly closely with, but don't always know a lot about it. So again, we're very excited about this topic. Um, There, you know, sometimes we talk about how there's a little bit of maybe animosity or misunderstanding between these two professions when we have to work together. So we're going to dive into that a little bit too. But first I wanted to introduce our guest. And so today we have Chloe Shiraki here, who is a pharmacist and is on our team here at Clinician's Brief. So Chloe, thank you so much for being here. And if you don't mind to kind of introduce yourself a little bit, tell us about your journey kind of through pharmacy school and just in general, how one becomes, I should mention, is a veterinary pharmacist. So how one becomes a veterinary pharmacist. Thank you for having me on. Um, So I went to a pharmacy school, a human pharmacy school, like every other pharmacist. Um, I went to University of Michigan College of Pharmacy. I teched and interned at a big chain pharmacy throughout pharmacy school. And then My school didn't have any veterinary related electives or rotations or anything like that available at the time. So I tried to just pick applicable experiences when I could. So I tried to take compounding related rotations. I took pediatric related rotations, anything that might apply towards a veterinary career. And then after pharmacy school, I did a residency at a veterinary hospital. So I rotated through all of the specialty services throughout the hospital. I learned about food animal medicine, um, did staffing of the pharmacy, all of that kind of thing. And then after specializing through residency, I did a short stint as a relief pharmacist at another veterinary hospital, teaching hospital. And then I ended up working full-time where I did my residency. So I worked as a clinical pharmacist full-time there for a few years and then From there, I transitioned into working for more of a warehouse veterinary pharmacy type setting and also doing some work for plums on drug monographs. And then I started with Brief full-time this year, working on drug monographs and med guides and drug interaction checker. Yep. Those have been, oh, the drug interaction checker. So you're one of the brilliant (laughs) minds behind that. (laughs) Uh, Not yet, but I will be soon, hopefully. (laughs) So I'm really interested, Chloe, did you know that you wanted to, you know, work in the veterinary field first and then you went to pharmacy school or this was something that peaked, you know, while you were in school? Yeah. So I kind of have always had a plan to go to pharmacy school, have always, meaning, you know, when they ask you what you want to be when you grow up, that was what I came up with. So that was kind of always the plan. And then as I started looking into pharmacy schools and you know, applying and touring and stuff. I heard briefly of veterinary pharmacy, but the answer at that time was, oh, that's not really a thing. Mm -hmm. And as I was going through pharmacy school, I was struggling to figure out what area of pharmacy I wanted to be in and was still kind of, you know, it's very hospital, human hospital residency focused program. So that was a a lot of where the focus was and there wasn't as much focus on the more non-traditional pathways at least from my experience. Um, And so it was kind of this battle between, I would love to do that, but it's not really a thing. 
and kind of how to proceed from there. So I think I ended up getting really lucky. <laughs> um, well, you made it a thing and that's awesome. I reached out to some of the the big minds in the field and was able to kind of go from there and work my way through, which was really awesome. That's fantastic. And yes, we're lucky to have you. And I should explain to our audience too that um, Clinician's Brief is related to Plums because we are both owned by the parent company and work very closely together. So that is kind of why, why Chloe is here and part of the Plums team and the Clinician's Brief team. And so, you know, some of the questions that we wanted to ask you is kind of just to, again, help bridge this gap on how general practitioners can relate, um, especially since you do have such vast experience in both the veterinary side, but all of your experience on the human side as well. And just kind of ask, you know, what do we need to know about how a pharmacy might work? Like when you go into your local pharmacy, what is going on behind the scenes? Like, especially that vets or even just regular customers may not know or understand, but particularly as it relates to vets, what might we not know that maybe we should? I think as far as anyone in general, not knowing what goes behind, behind the scenes at a pharmacy, what goes on behind <laughs> the scenes, um, from my personal experience, the best way to answer that question is just pure chaos. It's chaos behind the scenes at all times. So at any given time, you have a queue of, I don't know, hundreds of prescriptions that need to be filled that come in through phone, fax, e-script, in-person scripts. So even if you only see a few people in line at the pharmacy, there's still hundreds of prescriptions being filled. The phones mm-hmm. ring nonstop. The lines stack up at the drop-off window, the pickup window. If you are lucky enough or unlucky enough to have a drive-through, you get lines at the drive-through. You know, there's inventory ordering, inventory, you know, putting away, sorting, all that kind of stuff, processing, filling, and verifying the actual prescriptions. Obviously, is happening. Billing and troubleshooting insurance takes up a lot of time. Calling insurance companies with issues, calling doctors with issues on prescriptions or questions on prescriptions. There's vaccines that need to be administered, especially, you know, we're getting into flu season. There's going to be a ton of people in line for flu shots, which takes a pharmacist out of workflow to do that. Patients that need to be counseled. And then on top of all of that, there's a lot of corporate junk that is like, are you giving enough vaccines every day? Are people signing up for your automatic refills? Is your transaction time too slow? But are you remembering to ask about the store rewards and tax notifications and you know, all of those kind of things on top of everything else. So that's all happening all at one time. In addition to that, I feel like personally, in my experience, again, everyone is kind of mad at you all the time. Um, (laughs) Patients are mad that they have to wait for prescriptions because everyone expects fast food. They're mad when their prescriptions aren't covered, even though that has nothing to do with us. Um, Doctors are mad when you call to question things or when insurance doesn't cover something. Um, It's just a lot of, and I know like it's a stressful place to be in general if you're sick and you're coming in for medications. There's there's a lot going on, but it's a lot happening and a lot of emotion from all all sides. You know, what you said there about when you walk into the pharmacy, even if you only see one or two people in line, that doesn't mean that there isn't, you know, some kind of hurricane going on behind the desk. 
And and we as veterinarians should understand that, right? We know mm-hmm. that what they see up in the front lobby has absolutely nothing to do with what's going on in the treatment area. And there could be, you know, a, you know, a myriad of critical animals that need your attention right then. But the person waiting at the front desk doesn't see any of that. And they don't understand why their prescription that they called in yesterday is not ready yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And dealing with a similar population of people. You know, I feel like pharmacists deal with a lot of older patients or sick patients. And of course, that's similar in veterinary medicine where we're seeing people maybe not always on their best day as well. So yes, a lot of stress that you're describing sounds quite relatable. Yeah, exactly. We have a lot of similarities in that sense. Yeah, it's something that I think we as, you know, veterinarians should be easily able to empathize with. (laughs) So thinking about that, you know, the next time you have to call or something. Chloe, what, you know, should we, you had said that, you know, when you went to through school and wanted to focus your attention as a veterinary pharmacist, that this path was very non-traditional. You faced, you know, some hurdles there. So what should we assume or not assume that human pharmacists know about veterinary medicine? Um, yeah, I think, I I know some colleges definitely have the option for veterinary electives or rotations or things like that. But since it's not a required part of the curriculum, that is going to vary from college to college. So there are also continuing education courses and other resources out there for pharmacists. And I would hope that a lot of them are trying to tap into that if they know they have veterinary patients. But I think since it's so inconsistent, it's safest to just err on the side of assuming that knowledge is limited. And so, Chloe, when you talk about, of course, not getting a lot of training, I know one of the first thing that in veterinary medicine for most pharmacists, of course, one of the first things that comes to my mind is when we prescribe medications that, you know, might have like an additive or something. Like I know we hear about xylitol being in some medications. Is that something that we need to be specifying when we call pharmacists and leave messages for prescriptions, like what to avoid or how should we handle that? Yeah. So when I transitioned from human to veterinary pharmacy, that was something I didn't even think to consider at first. A lot of things in veterinary pharmacy, I feel like just require a different way of thinking that kind of takes some time to adjust to. So even though there are definitely pharmacists out there that are aware of toxins like that, that are can be in some medications, it might not even be on the radar for some others. So again, I think if you can mention any toxins that you're concerned about or you know any inactives, anything like that that you're concerned about for a specific prescription, that will help the pharmacist help you. So there are a couple of different ways that you can approach it. You can ask what brand of a medication is currently carried in their pharmacy if you're calling in a a prescription to that pharmacy. Um, And then you can check the package insert or somewhere like Daily Med and look for the inactive ingredients. You can specifically just ask the pharmacist, is there any xylitol in this gabapentin Mm -hmm. that you have in your pharmacy right now? You can write on the prescription, must not contain xylitol. Or if you happen to know, say that Amniel brand doesn't contain xylitol, you can write on the prescription Amniel brand only. But also knowing that all pharmacies might not have that specific manufacturer in stock or the ability to get it and maybe expecting a call on that. But I think in general, just being able to coordinate with the pharmacist, depending on what works for you, what works for them, what's your relationship with the pharmacy or that pharmacist, and just making sure that it's kind of on everyone's radar. I'm sure that 
a lot of pharmacists are more than willing to check for an ingredient if you know that you need to be watching out for this specific ingredient. But if you happen to get an unhelpful pharmacist or someone who's just way too busy, just knowing that you can ask for the brand and look for yourself as well. That's super helpful. So Chloe, in the last uh, couple of years, I've transitioned over from mostly in clinic work. I'm still in clinic, you know, once in a while, but to in-home hospice and euthanasia. And it has really changed how I interact with pharmacists because it's hard to get a hold of me. Like, I, so I have been talking with pharmacists a lot more, you know, like waiting, holding, and I don't mind holding because I'd rather actually talk to them than have them try to call me back, you know, at a time where I'm, you know, in someone's home. Uh, and I obviously can't answer the phone during, during a, you know, end of life care appointment. And so, but it's, it's honestly helped to talk directly to the pharmacist for me. And I wish I'd been doing it for years. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely depends on which pharmacy and how. I mean, I will say when I started working in retail, it was very much birth by fire. So my first year there, I probably was not the best person to talk to. (laughs) Um, Granted, I tried to always find the best person, but it is, I mean... It was very much just like, okay, you're in it, have yeah. have fun. And I had nightmares for months about the like insurance rejection screen. I would have nightmares about it turning red. Oh gosh. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, just yeah, it, de- it depends on who you talk to at what stage of their pharmacy training. <laughs> well, that actually kind of is another thing we wanted we wanted to ask you. Um, and because we've kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier in the episode, but there are definitely I mean, there definitely can be frustration on on our part. I know I've had some interactions in the past that I was frustrated about. And just to be, you know, just to ask, you know, the other side of it, it are, are those frustrations two ways to do pharmacists, you know, complain about us? Um, well, I think... I mean, let's just start by saying that everyone in this type of profession is frustrated at some point because (laughs) we're all so stressed out and we're so busy. So I definitely can't speak on behalf of all retail pharmacists. I can only draw from my personal experience. But when I did work in human retail, when I remember being frustrated with a veterinarian specifically about something, um, a lot of times it was because that I, I was calling to clarify a prescription in order to be able to do my job. And they were frustrated with me for bothering them or calling or whatever. So I think that was one of that's one of the ones that I remember. But I think in general, there are differences between human and veterinary medicine that can lead to confusion, which I think can cause frustration. So, you know, the differences in medication names, you know, clavamox versus amoxclav, the differences in how we talk about strengths of medications where, you know, veterinary medicine, you combine them into one and in human medicine, we don't do that. And so if you're trying to talk to someone and there's confusion about what you're talking about, of course, that's going to lead to frustration. Um, Things like that. I can say currently as a pharmacist, which may likely apply to retail settings as well, Currently, my main frustrations with specifically, I feel like, I mean, doctors too, don't get me wrong, but a lot (laughs) of times the prescriptions that I'm getting are like, the directions are give monthly or like apply as directed or, you know, one, one dose daily or something like that. And that's not how we were taught to that. That's not what we were taught a complete SIG was. So every SIG should have a a dose, whether it's a tablet or 
you know, whatever it might be, but it should be specified. It should have a route, even though we all think like, of course it's by mouth, but you guys would be shocked at the things that <laughs> we hear about in retail pharmacy. Um, you know, a frequency, it, it should be there every time, even if it's just something simple like HeartGuard, it should be give one tablet once a month. It shouldn't just say like give monthly. That's a no, that's a great one. Give monthly. I'm probably guilty of that. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, theoretically, as a as an owner or a patient, you could read that and like, you know, they have a box of three or a box of six. And you, you think that people won't do things like that until you get the oh, call. Sure. That's like, oh, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> oh, I've, I've yeah. yes, I've had, <laughs> you know, in 20 years, I've had Tresiderm drops go in eyes. I've had Clavamox drops go in ears. So I, I, yeah, I exactly. <laughs> so just specifying every piece of that SIG is really important. And then I guess the other thing that is frustrating for me as a pharmacist now is when I do call with a question on a prescription or a concern about a dose is if a veterinarian just flat out refuses to talk to me. And like, I, I get it. If you guys aren't having great experiences with pharmacists in general, like that can carry over from interaction to interaction. But I do find that frustrating when, you know, I'm trying to do my job. We're both trying to take care of the patient. And, you know, I'm calling to have a conversation about it from professional to professional. And I get someone who's like, yep, that's the dose that's been working for them. And that's all that's helped me. (laughs) Right. Right. Absolutely. And I know one thing, at least in my experience, Alyssa, you've probably experienced the same thing. But I know whenever I do, of course, sometimes you're just leaving a message on the voicemail when you call in a prescription. But a lot of times the first question I get if I am on the line with someone at the pharmacy office is they want to know what my NPI number is. And of course, like as a vet, well, I shouldn't say of course, but Alyssa will will know. Of course, like I didn't even know what that was at first as a veterinarian because mm-hmm. um at least in my knowledge, veterinarians aren't even able to get an NPI number or we don't have one and we tend to operate off of our DEA. But do you mind to weigh in for, I'm sure a lot of other vets have gotten that question as well. Can you kind of explain what that means and how pharmacists view that? Yeah. So just for a little bit of context, asking for an NPI number in like the human pharmacy world is like asking for a patient's date of birth. It's something that we just do every single time. Mm -hmm. So even though a lot of pharmacists probably know that veterinarians don't have NPIs, a lot of times it's just second nature to ask for one. Um, And I'm sure it's like really frustrating to say over and over again, like vets don't have NPIs, vets don't have NPIs. And I did run into that just transferring prescriptions even. From my understanding... I don't know the full history, but from my understanding, at one point there was a confusion about veterinarians being eligible to obtain NPI numbers, which I think it was something, there was some confusing language on the form or something like that. Confusing regulatory language? You're kidding. (laughs) I I don't, again, I'm not an expert. This is just my Very sarcastic. (laughs) So since then, that's been clarified by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid that veterinarians are not eligible for MPI numbers because they do not meet the regulatory definition of a healthcare provider, meaning they don't bill Medicare and Medicaid. That's my understanding as well, is this is directly tied to being able to bill Medicare and Medicaid. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think something that I started to do when I was talking to pharmacists in a human retail setting who would ask for it when I was transferring prescriptions, instead of just saying vets don't have NPIs, something I started doing was saying veterinarians aren't eligible for NPIs because they don't bill Medicare or Medicaid. And just being able to explain that little bit extra, I think, first of all, providing that 
resource of Center for Medicare and Medicaid for anyone who's like maybe skeptical, like, what do you mean everyone has an MPI? Veterinarians have to have one or, you know, if there's someone out there being able to point to a specific resource, I think is really helpful. And then also just kind of triggering like, this is why they're not eligible might hopefully help them remember in the future. I think just that little bit of extra information can sometimes make a difference. Sometimes after I I explain that I don't have one, the other thing that I do um, is ask them, how can you find me? Like, how can you look me up? Um, because that's my understanding where really the issue comes because as veterinarians, we have been advised by the DEA that if we're not calling in a controlled substance, we really shouldn't be using our DEA for identification. It should only be used for a controlled substance. So, um, you know, kind of just asking in, in a nice way, how else can you find me? Yeah, I think that's the perfect way to ask that because from my experience, that was exactly why we did it. We asked for a DEA number because like an NPI, it's a unique number that's tied just to you. So when you're looking through your database of providers, it's a really easy and efficient way to verify that you have the correct person rather than like however many names pop up with the same, you know, the same name or under the same phone number or whatever it might be. So that's why we did it. I personally don't fully understand i i know like what you said dea says you know you shouldn't be giving it out just for identification purposes if you're on the phone with a pharmacy i guess i personally don't understand that recommendation and i'm not saying to go against the dea's guidance i just don't understand it from a pharmacy perspective because we're able to look Mm -hmm. up dea Mm -hmm. numbers like we're supposed to be verifying dea numbers that they're active and legitimate So we could be looking it up anyway. So I don't know if that's more to do with like writing it on a prescription versus like giving it directly to a pharmacy. I I don't know. Um, But I will also say that in addition to being able to look up a provider in the system, DEA numbers can also be used for billing coupons. A lot of times like coupon codes will be, you need either an MPI number or a DEA number. So in order to be able to get a discount for that owner, you have to have one of those two numbers. So sometimes that's why it's asked for as well. Um, But certainly if you're calling in a prescription, it's not controlled, you don't feel comfortable giving it, don't give it. There are other ways, like you said, just asking like, how can you find me? Because I think that also depends on the system. Some people can, I think, use license numbers, otherwise phone number, address, stuff like that. And, you know, those are the the real questions. Like a lot of the stuff you're telling me, I had no idea. <laughs> um, and so this is great information. And this is why we wanted to have this conversation. One of the other things that it, and, and it has happened to me before, where I have had a pharmacist actually alter my prescription or alter the recommendations to the client without involving me. And particularly things where dosages are very, very different, like, you know, right off the top of your head, like thyroid supplement, vastly different dosages, oral diazepam, vastly different dosages uh, for humans and, and animals. And so just to give us a little bit of the other, the perspective of the other side, why might a pharmacist feel, you know, ethically responsible to bring up concerns with the client? And how do we approach that so that we can work as a team? Yeah. Um, So at the end of the day, it's our license that's on the prescription. So I guess as far as why a pharmacist might be questioning 
I mean, we have to feel comfortable with the prescription that we're verifying because our license is on it too. In human medicine, it's perfectly reasonable to substitute like dosage forms and things like that based on availability, cost, other factors. I can't speak to changing a a dose. You're saying, you know, like telling a client a different dose. I don't really have any thoughts on why that might have been done the way it was done. Okay, Chloe, that's all very interesting. Because yes, like I think when I write a prescription or call in a prescription, it doesn't even dawn on me that there's going to be a pharmacist like critically thinking about that prescription. Honestly, I never really thought about the fact that you guys have a, a license that you are signing. You know, you're putting your name to that prescription as well. I kind of think of it as just like, you know, automatically getting filled. So that's very interesting. Do you mind to kind of like explain the process when you get a prescription, what that looks like? Yeah. So I feel like a lot of people, I mean, medical professionals and patients all just kind of assume that we're there to just fill the prescription and put a label on it. But really questioning a prescription is part of our job. We're there to make sure that patients are safe and that prescriptions are legal and that medication therapy is streamlined and effective and affordable and logical. And all of those things go into verification of a prescription. So definitely, I think expecting the pharmacist to question your doses when they don't match up with humans. I I mean, that just means the pharmacist is doing their job, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. They should be questioning it. So I think something that might be helpful is telling us why. If you can explain like why a dose is higher or maybe why that specific dose is high because dogs need a higher dose or whatever it might be, or you know, giving a mig per kig target so that a pharmacist can also calculate it and make sure that, you know, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. That goes with what their weight is or giving a reference, just giving more information so that a pharmacist has something, another way to like verify that prescription and make them feel comfortable putting their license on it as well. I think that could be really helpful. And it's not because we're like questioning your clinical judgment or anything like that. It's you know, we see a lot of prescriber mistakes because that's our job is to catch prescriber mistakes. And it could just be like, even if you tell us, yeah, that's the right dose, we might think like, okay, but maybe, maybe you intended, you know, a different <laughs> dose and like it was a miscalculation or like you think you're right, but like, right. what if there's a math error or something exactly. like that? So yeah. I think the more information you can give, the the better we can work together to just make sure it's a safe dose. Right. Yeah. And come at it from the standpoint, like you said, if, so, if somebody has a question not necessarily questioning our medical knowledge or judgment, just more, just a question. And checks and balances are so important. I mean, I have my, that's what I say, you know, having my very trusted licensed technicians, I want them double checking my dosages every day. I'm like, did you check that yourself? Like I did it, you know, people say, you know, did is this the dose? And I'll say, well, I calculated it, but I haven't checked it. Can you check it? You know, because, yeah, because we all make mistakes, you know, and that's what we're here for <laughs> yeah. too. Like we're here to, we're here to help catch any of the ones that get through and, you know, just make sure that everything is as it was intended to be. And I love it when people can say like, oh yeah, I'm using it at this specific weird dose for this specific weird reason. And then I'm like, okay, cool. Well, going forward now, I know if I see this really strange dose, like maybe this is why. And I have you know, an extra piece of information that I can use moving forward. That's yes, that's actually very reassuring. Because like I said, I really did not, you know, know that you guys gave that and it's reassuring as a human patient, (laughs) as well knowing someone's, you know, 
double checking as they decipher the doctor's handwriting to make sure you're getting the correct dose. And yeah, Chloe, I can't emphasize how much I learned here. Um, <laughs> maybe I should have known some of this information beforehand. My two takeaways are maybe um, that schools need to start making some of this part of the educational curriculum. Um, my other takeaway is maybe I need to go bring some donuts to my local pharmacist or something because <laughs> you've yeah, certainly I highlighted that too. I know, like how similar their jobs can be, maybe if not even a little more chaotic than ours. So point being, thank you. And uh, we have gotten to our final segment, which I will introduce you to, Chloe, since this is your first time here, where we do win of the week. And just kind of end on a positive note, discuss a small or big, I guess, win of the week. So Dr. Alyssa, I will let you go first if you have one. Um, so I do. Um, I think last time we met, we talked about how Luna, oh, Chloe, my dog, Luna, um, I have an eight-year-old dog named Bordeaux. She is my love. So she had had a swollen toe and I was worried that she had cancer. And so um, I had done a, a needle aspirate and it came back, no evidence of cancer, just inflammation. And it was great. And I was, I put her on antibiotics and increased her anti-inflammatories and pain meds that she's normally on because of her awful arthritis. And then I fooled myself into thinking she was getting better when she wasn't, but wah, wah, she did have cancer. <laughs> so, but my win of the week is I went ahead and uh, took her toe off. Um, and she sailed through it. It was beautiful. She did great. My closure was lovely. I was very proud of it. Um, and uh, she's doing really, really well. And I didn't realize how bad she was feeling, but I know now because she's doing so much better and she started acting Aww. more like herself and put about five pounds back on. So um, that's a great one. Yeah. So we're still, we're, um, it did come back as squamous cell. So that was un, I wasn't, wasn't expecting that. Um, so for all of our wonderful, you know, followers and people who listen every week, stay tuned because we'll probably be revisiting this after I talk to the local oncologist. Absolutely. I'm glad she's doing better, Alyssa. Yeah, she is. She is. How about you, Dr. Beth? What was your win? My big win, let's see, my big win just ended actually at two in the morning this morning. And that is I got home um, despite some flight delays and issues, which were not part of the win of this week. But my win of the week was <laughs> that I took a trip to Tulsa, which is where Plum's Clinicians Brief, Brief Media is all headquartered. And I work remotely in Cincinnati, but that's where a majority of the team works is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so for the first time, all these people that I've been collaborating with and on Zoom calls with for the last, I guess, 10 months, I got to meet them in person and it was absolutely delightful. I was shocked at how well I felt like I knew them even just through a few Zoom calls. So again, other than, of course, um, the airlines like to put a damper on any win of the week, but other than that, it was a really good time. So i um, happy to be back. So Chloe, what about you? Have you thought of anything for us? I'm going to go ahead and say that being on this podcast is my win of the week because yes. um, trying to help bridge that gap between pharmacists and veterinarians is something that I feel really passionate about. I think that when we're able to work collaboratively, it makes a huge difference for our patients. So I'm really excited to be able to help play a part in that. Yeah, and having our first guest, I think, is a big win for all <laughs> of us. So we did it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I agree with you, Alyssa. This is wonderful. And anytime we can make um, that break room as informative as we have today is always a huge win. So Chloe, again, thank you so much for being here. We all learned a lot. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. And we will talk to all of you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Veterinary Break Room. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. You can also listen to podcasts on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts, or drop us a line at podcasts at briefmedia.com. Veterinary Break Room is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ussery with sound by Randall Stupka and co-hosted by Dr. Alyssa Watson and Dr. Beth Mollison.